0: But very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including
1: the ultimate form of singularity, which is... how can change to the whole state of things, endure violence without also This is the typical violence of Violent, because what happens there
0: is a the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality.
2: Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
1: Thank you for joining us on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. As always, I'm your host, Cooper Cherry, joined by my co-host, Taylor Atkins, and we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we do want to mention that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, so please consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. Taylor and I are very excited to bring you a returning guest. Leon Bremner is going to be speaking about his book, Once again, the autistic subject on the threshold of language. This episode will focus primarily on the autistic rim. Here is Leon.
2: We left off talking about the rim and we said we need to talk about the drive, right? Yes. This is where we left
0: off last time. So shall we just begin with that? I think that that is great. My only thing would be if you feel like we need to go over the unary trait, we can say a little bit about that or you can tie it in later. The foreclosure of the unary trait and then the foreclosure of the rim have some resonance, as you point out in your footnotes. We can think about if we want to start with either of those, but we were on the rim last time. So we could continue with that and circle back like the inverted circle eight, whichever feels more... But since we only have you for a limited time, maybe we can leave out the the unary trait and just just kind of dive in.
2: Yeah, let's see if we get there, you know? Let's see if our discussion takes us there. I think it's important to, because we ended on the question of the rim. And then maybe the first thing that is important to do is to distinguish the rim as uh, I discuss it in terms of the autistic subject. Mm -hmm. So let's say the autistic rim and the rim in general, which is a concept that Lacan develops and presents regardless of autism. So it appears with no relationship to autism, but it does appear in relation to this concept called the drive, right? So we can begin by speaking about the drive and see where the rim sort of gets into the picture, and then by understanding exactly what is the rim of the drive, trying to understand what is the autistic rim, how do we distinguish it, what is its relationship with this rim, etc., right? Because these are two concepts. So again, I I don't know if we talked about it last time about mistranslations of Freud, because there's so many we uh, didn't
0: but this is one of my this is horses yeah this is one of my favorite things to talk about you you spend a little time you don't take stray f- to task like I like to do you, you're you're pretty generous on that front but he uses one term in English instinct for Trebe and the the well the word in German instinct and and Freud never confuses the two this is I think a, a just a I'll just say it's, it's bad luck. It's, in, it's unfortunate.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. That's an understatement. Mm-hmm. And there are many other translation problems, but maybe this is, this is one of the most crucial ones. Mm-hmm. Right. As you have said, Taylor, in German, there's the word "trieb," which is very similar to drive in English. Right. And the word instinct, which is very similar to instinct. Right. And Freud uses these to designate different, different things. His theory, which has to do more with the drive than with the instinct. Psychoanalysis is more to do with what is already psychic, and the drive is this, yes? So, um, we can say that the drive is a more of a psychoanalytic concept than the instinct, and uh, when uh, Lacan refers to this translation error in seminar 11, he says it quite explicitly. Tribe and instinct have nothing in common. So, what is an instinct let's try and generally define it. An instinct would be a hardwired biological program that, uh, let's say, compels the organism to survive, right? So the instinct acts to fulfill certain needs by raising tension levels and lowering them when these needs are satisfied. And in this sense, we can associate the instinct with the natural rhythm of the body. And I always suggest to look at it like a sinus wave. Mm No, so there's uh, if, uh, if the sinus wave goes up, let's say one is hungry and hungrier, and then someone eats and the sinus wave goes down, and this continues. This is the rhythm of life, the rhythm of the body, let's say. The drive is something completely different. Starting from the end or starting somewhere from the middle, I can say that the drive is a unique product of the encounter between the, let's say, the biological organism or the body and language. So the drive is a product of this encounter and it manifests in the psyche. So it manifests as a major part of the psyche. And what it does, it embodies this effect that can be described as mutual between language and the body. So, there are these mutual effects that that are the outcome of this encounter. Now, rather than being equated to the instinct, we actually can say that the drive originates exactly from a rupture in the instinctual organization of the natural world, let's say of the organism. It's something we can call um, A break, sort of, that manifests there. And what it does, it thrusts, let's say, something from what Lacan will call the register of the real. But we can say, I sometimes call it uh, this primal, original vivacity of the body mm-hmm. and into the domain of this symbolic, into the symbolic reality. And it does so through the introduction of the order of the signifier. So this is how Lacan views things. And if we, we will be a little more Lacanian, we can say that the drive emerges as an excess produced by the cut that the signifier introduces into the real, right? So this would be a very exact Formulation to read and read again. And if we go back to Freud, then we don't want to be so Lacanians at the moment, so we can say that this cut that we're talking about, this cut that Lacan associates with the signifier, well, we can say this is a cut that circumvents the orifices of the body, or what we call in psychoanalysis the erogenous zones or organs. And for Freud, this would be the oral, the anal, the phallic, and Lacan. Adds to, to the list and in seminar 11 kicks out the phallic from the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we have the scopic for Lacan. So this would be the having to do with the gaze object and the invocatory has to do with the voice objects, with hearing and the voice object. And um, these are the names we can say of the drives in psychoanalysis, like oral, anal, scopic, invocatory. This is for Lacan's psychoanalysis. So. This is a brief introduction of the drive, and we want to talk about the rim. So, the rim is introduced a year later. So, what I've been discussing right now is you can find a lot of it in Lacan's seminar 10. In seminar 11, Lacan presents his deconstruction of the drive. This is how he calls it. And he actually goes back to Freud, and he implements three, uh, sorry, four Freudian components of the drive. One is called Drang in German, which is thrust. There's the Ziel, the aim, object, the object, and the Quelle, the source. Now, we'll briefly introduce ourselves with these, and then we'll see that Lacan actually does it makes a little transformation here mm-hmm. and introduces the rim, right? So this is where the rim is introduced, and this is our, our major topic today, so... so Let's try and contrast these components of the drive with what we might call an instinct. So, let's start with the thrust. The thrust is characterized by Freud as a constant force. Mm-hmm. Unlike the instinctual need, let's say hunger, for instance, it, it doesn't engage with the organism as a whole, right? It is divided into the erogenous zones of the body, right? So, there's these thrusts and they are partial. They have to do with these particular erotogenic organs. The instinct would engage with the organism as a whole, and like we said, will function like a sinus wave, It has this Mm. rhythm, but the drive is a constant force, so we might imagine a straight line, right? Or what we might call a constant function in Mm. mathematics. In a second, I'll say that this straight line is actually a circle, but we'll, we'll get there in, in a moment. Now, the aim would be the second component, and the aim provides the trajectory for the satisfaction of the drive. Now, what is interesting with Lacan, it's an interesting concept in general to think about and even develop philosophically, but Lacan theorized it in, in psychoanalytic terms, and he insisted that there is a strict dissociation between the aim and the object of the drive, So the drive aims for a satisfaction that is totally indifferent to the identity of its object. Now, this is very different than an instinct because hunger will aim at the consumption of food, right? So hunger will be satiated by consuming food, but the oral drive, let's say, what we usually associate with the mouth, for instance, does not necessarily aim at stuffing the mouth with food, right? Uh, One might say that oral satisfaction can also be gained by just ordering from the menu, just talking about the dishes, let's say. So this would be a way to to gain satisfaction. You see, it's not about the food, right? It's about some form of oral satisfaction. So there's a a divorce, a dissociation between the aim and the object of the drive. And in this sense, we say that the drive aims around the object. Mm -hmm. So the satisfaction is not achieved by shooting an arrow that hits the object, but it's achieved by getting this arrow to continuously revolve around the object, demarcating its contours. And this is why we argue in the Lacanian orientation that the drive reaches its goal without attaining its object. So, the drive produces satisfaction without attaining the object by circumventing it. Now, the last component is the source of the drive, and this is what Lacan calls the rim like structure. Right? So, the source of the drive has the rim like structure of the erogenous zones of the body. So, these are not, again, associated with the biological function of these organs, but with their role in the mediation between the body and language. So now we have these four components of the drive and we will see that in seminar 11, Lacan develops them into what he calls the schema of the drive circuit. I don't know if you you remember the schema, it's sort of this arrow that goes around the object. Yes, Um, I remember Cooper said it looks like a pacifier. Yes, yes, I agree. So this is the, the schema. And what you see at the center of the schema is the drive object. And here it's marked by this, uh, this letter a, a, marking the object A, which A is a general name to call whatever would be a drive object. So it's sort of the general designation of drive objects, right? That would be the oral object, the anal object, the scopic object, but A is a way to generally talk about them all because they have some common features. Now on the right, you will see the source of the drive, and you see that it is explicitly replaced by Lacan with the figure of the rim, right? So you see it's written there, rim. And the thrust of the drive is represented in the schema by the arrow that moves in a circular trajectory around the object. It originates from within the rim, It aims its trajectory around the object, finally returning to its source, which in the schema is designated by the goal. So what the schema does, it accentuates the dissociation between the drive's aim and its object. And this time it demonstrates that the drive's goal is not the attainment of the object, but the return to the source, Constant force, we said. Right. right. So he, he previously I said, imagine a straight line. A mathematician won't find this so problematic, but it, a circle can also, is, is a straight line, just repeating itself in, in, in a way. So what we see is that according to Freud, at a certain point in a child's life, the drive stops its development and it fixates in a certain way. And what we might say now, using these uh, schemas and explanations from Lacombe, is that this fixation sets this circular and continuous motion of the drive circuit, and it puts in place this most essential mode of libidinal repetition, we can say. And this is a movement that repeats itself, where the drive originates from the erogenous zone, continues to circumvent the object, and returns to the erogenous zone from where it set out in the first place. So we would say that maybe this is the reason, and this is just a a pop psychology example, a pop psychoanalysis example. This is why when someone says that they're hungry, for instance, we have the sinus wave, remember? So it goes up and then someone eats a sandwich. So it goes down, it subdues the instinctual need. But, you know, sometimes even though we are full, we keep on eating another cake, another, I don't know, another uh, coffee. And you see how the, this sinus wave is dis- disrupted where we see the circuit of the drive sort of peeking out from the bottom, marking out the object there and uh, the satisfaction that i get from let's say doing this from eating the another cake and another cake and another cake has nothing to do with the instinctual rhythm right but it has to do with the satisfaction of the drive and this is why lacan would say that the object a is introduced from the fact that no food will ever satisfy the oral drive except by circumventing the eternally lacking object so this is a quote from Lacombe from seminar 11. So we see that it's not so much the object, when we talk about this object, it's not the object that we find and consume. We see that the drive object is actually this hinge that conditions the relationship between the rim in its manifestation as a source and a goal. And it is situated between these two surfaces let's say, of the rim, one associated with the body and the other associated with language. I give this uh, metaphor. I don't know if, if uh, you just breathe through it because for me, it's uh, it's very touching. It has to do with, with my youth and uh, let's say uh, building tents. I like doing that. Mm. And there's a certain trick If you want to build a tent out of uh, sheets, you take two sheets, and you put them one next to the other, one over the other, and you put a little rock, and then you tuck them both around the rock, and you tie a rope around this rock. And this way, the sheets don't separate. So you can, in a way, illustrate the function of the drive object in this way. It is this little rock put in between the body and language, the surfaces of the rim, and by having the circuit circumventing the object we have these two let's say sheets tied together
0: i was wondering in your book where that (laughs) image came from i was struck by that i thought it was very singular because you don't you don't attribute it to lacan or 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 any of the other interlocutors so that's interesting that you gave us a little insight into uh, (laughs) into that image yes absolutely for me it's 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 crystal clear because I've mm-hmm. done that many times.
2: It's an okay. excellent
0: way to build, build yeah. a tent. <laughs> but, it, but it also illustrates this notion that she, I know you, I forget the author you cite, but, but this notion of that recurs throughout the book, this nodding of uh, yeah. suissance and language. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes, exactly. So, so we see here a
2: dynamic perspective on this knotting. right? And um, in the book, When I ask the question, what could be the object that is foreclosed in autism, in autistic foreclosure? I give three different perspectives through which to try and investigate this question. Mm -hmm. One is uh, more, let's say, structural or linguistic in its essence. The second is topological and the third is dynamic, right? And today we're talking about the dynamic interpretation, the understanding of this knotting in terms of libidinal functioning and the the circuit of the drive. So, shall we um, try and address these concepts in the context of autism? Please, yes. (laughs) okay. So, one of the uh, hypotheses that I present in the book is that in autism, something of the inscription of the rim in the circuit of the drive is foreclosed, right? So in my book, I call this operation that is, stands behind this foreclosure, I call it autistic foreclosure. We talked about it last time a little bit. And what I do is I associate it with the alterations that we see in the functioning of the drive among autistic subjects. Now, briefly stated, and this is again an illustration to understand what I'm aiming at here, Maybe I'm not aiming at the object here. <laughs> uh, We'll see. So, briefly stated, and you can read more about it in the book, I argue that in autism, the drive circuit is altered in such a way that doesn't affect the thrust of the drive. Right. That remains a constant force. And it, it doesn't affect the object of the drive per se, because it does appear... Let's say, well, for Lacombe, we, we say uh, something appears in the real. right? So the object of the drive appears in the foreground of an intolerable real. But what is the effect of this alteration is the lack of the rim. So in this sense, the source and the goal of the erogenous zones are, in a way, foreclosed. So we would say, Their designation in the psyche, their psychic designation, their symbolic inscription is foreclosed. So, what we see, in fact, and this is what I argue, is that in autism, we see the foreclosure of the rim of the drive. It gets a little more complicated in the book, but let's leave it on this level today. So, we see that there is no drive, and in this sense, the drive circuit loses its aim and is thrust into an aimless movement. Right. And in this sense, it is unable to symbolically inscribe the drive object. And here we have these two sheets. Something about their knotting is disturbed. Mm. So in other words, we can say that without the rim, the drive circuit is short-circuited. It lacks a source and is unable to return to its goal. And in this sense, it, uh, let's say, disturbs the inscription of the drive object. And this is why... We say that in autism, there is no big other because the drive object, the inscription of the drive object is achieved in the other, according to Lacombe, and it instates the relationship between the subject and the other. And because the big other is not rendered as the carrier, as the bearer of the drive object, it, let's say, is in a way foreclosed. we can say there is no dimension of lack inscribed in it. Mm -hmm. So we would say it is an other that is divorced from the domain of the symbolic. So, And this is, let's say, the, the major point in the book is that this disturbance in the relationship between the subject and language, between the body and language, is the fundamental characteristic of autistic subjectivity. And we are, in fact, faced when we meet autistic subjects in our praxis, we are faced with subjects that have very unique difficulties with their relationship with language.
0: All of this is fascinating. I I'm I don't want to necessarily keep you too long on the rim since this does open up to for example, the invocatory drive, and that gets us into chapter seven with the linguistic spectrum and the linguistic questions. Mm. I guess I would say you do modify that hypothesis, right? Where you you sort of put forth that it's the the source and the and the goal that are that are foreclosed, but you kind of rework this, right? And and I just wanted to know if what the implications are, or, or really quickly, like what what it is when you argue that it's not necessarily both, it ends up just being the goal, that perhaps the source is not itself so for close. Is that, does that open up too, too big of a can of worms?
2: No, that's uh, a very insightful, insightful comment, absolutely. I'm very impressed that you've noticed this argument, which is so really between the lines there, but it is very important, yes. It's the idea that we do see, let's say, the effect that the drive has on autistic subjects, and it has particular effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, if well, last time we talked about, let's say, defecation mm-hmm. and the uh, disturbances in, in that, on that level, also disturbances in, let's say, uh, dealing with sounds or uh, engaging with speech. So, we see disturbances which can be described as drive stimuli that intervenes in the subject's reality. So, If there is no source to drive, if the body doesn't function as a source, where does this excitation come from? So what I sort of suggest in the book is that, in fact, the the, um, erogenous zones go through a process of demarcation on the body, and this trace, and the trace of this demarcation still remains in autism. Because we do see drive stimuli intervene in particular ways in the body. But what is foreclosed is then the demarcation of these erogenous zones in the symbolic or in the big other, as we say. So, drive stimuli is experience, but in a non-mediated way. It's experienced through its different modalities, but there is no... Let's say at, th- at these, let's say for some subjects at some points, there is no capacity to uh, symbolically mediate them. So what is foreclosed is this is something that again is uh, maybe a can of worms. But what is foreclosed is the rim of the circuit of the drive, um, but at its. Third stage, let's say, I I talk a little bit about Freud's theory of of, of these uh, drive modalities. And Mm -hmm. I say, well, first, the rim is inscribed on the body, and then it is foreclosed in the other, which goes against some other scholars that uh, ask this question of the drive. And this is presented in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that 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 actually helps to crystallize it for me, because it is this movement from the active to the reflexive to this third stage of becoming passive of becoming the object would you say for the for the big other that's part of what forecloses the the goal and the return of the of the circuit which kind of renders it aimless as as you as you say in diagram exactly
2: exactly in the passive stage of of uh, the drive the other the big other is introduced we say this is when the baby is able to enjoy the mother nibbling or the parent nibbling at its at its feet right there's there's a, a unique kind of satisfaction that is achieved on this level and not in the previous levels in order for this satisfaction to be achieved there has to be inscribed a relationship between the subject and the big other so what is disturbed in fact is this relationship and this is why we say that in autism there is no big other
0: and that goes back to what you've pointed out throughout the book leading up to this, which is this notion of a sort of siphoning off of jouissance and a sort of yielding to the other of jouissance, which allows for the symbolic inscription or designation, and that's part of what is short-circuited. right. Right.
2: And and we can approach this in many different ways, but I think that one of the crucial ways to approach this, and this is a question of uh, the usefulness, or I think the capacity of psychoanalysis to engage with the question of autism, is, well, okay, you know, the big other is associated by Lacan with the locus of signifiers, with the place of language, with the place of the symbolic, right? The big other is the place where things are symbolically inscribed. So if there is no big other, Well, are we talking about subjects that are outside of language, right? This is a huge question that is raised. And many practitioners of autism, well, they sometimes say that or feel that autistic people are outside of language. They're mute or they don't understand, they don't use language to communicate, etc. Now, one of the major points in the book is this insistence of mine that this is not the case. Autistic subjects are not divorced from language, but they use language in an original way and through this way they can find their own unique solutions to being in the world, to existing. And what I basically argue, and uh, well, maybe we won't get too deeply into this today, is that while autistic subjects have no access to the big other in terms of being the locus of signifiers... They do have access to language with the help of what I define in the book as a sign, a linguistic sign, which is a linguistic unit that is distinct from the signifier. And we can say briefly that it's more akin to a rigid linguistic object than the empty and dynamic signifier. And what I argue about the rim, and we're getting to this point, this important point, is that with the help of signs, autistic subjects are able to construct a neo rim So this would be a supplementary rim. It's not the original rim of the drive circuit. It's a supplementary rim that enables a unique type of psychic dynamism. And this is the autistic rim. And what I argue is that through the work of repetition and memorization, autistic subjects are able to develop this Neo-RIM based on their linguistic functionality and up to the level of total independence, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is sort of an, an optimistic idea that I progress in the book just because, you know, I base it on the testimonies of autistic subjects. And what I try to do in this chapter, chapter 7, as you said, which is the most clinically oriented and um, mm-hmm. maybe the most uh, practical is I attempt to identify different modalities in the utilization of the sign, in the construction of the neo-rim. Right. And I base my work on, majorly I base my work on the work of Jean-Claude Maleval, which is one of the most talented and inspirational Lacanian writers on the subject of autism today, if you ask me and on other case studies and testimonies that I collect. And what I identify, and we can say so far, because today I'm working on some new things and we might add some stuff there to this uh, idea, but what I identify so far are four such modalities of the use of the sign, which I distribute on what I call the autistic linguistic spectrum. And this is sort of an alternative and a little, uh, a little uh, uh, wink to the uh, Autistic Spectrum Disorder Framework, right? It is not the ASD, the Autistic Spectrum Disorder Framework. It is the Autistic Linguistic Spectrum, which is an alternative to the Behavioral Cognitive Framework of the Autistic Spectrum Disorder. And what's interesting about it is that it provides metapsychological categories with which one can identify these modalities. And through their identification, a particular dynamism of the subject is identified and can be engaged with on the level of the body, on the level of knowledge, and on the level of the social bond. And each one of these modalities dictates a different mode of operation for the subject. And in this sense, it necessitates a distinct psychoanalytic position in the treatment and facilitation of autism. And in the book, I present these modalities called the absence of the rim, the protective rim, the dynamic rim, and the hollowing out of the rim. And these are the modalities that are distributed on the uh, autistic uh, linguistic spectrum. And at this point, I'll I'll leave it to you uh, to decide where we take it from here.
0: One of the, the things that I found so fascinating about this chapter is this notion of supplementarity you've touched on it we discussed a little bit about the signifier and the sign last week and you're correct to, to say that malval is is obviously very important to to your work as a whole but this chapter as well and one of the fascinating things that i thought was in your footnotes which which i which i do love and i, and I feel like they they're little breadcrumb trails to extending the line write uh, the lines of thought in your book. I, I wondered if we could, since we've discussed the rim, and you, you laid out the different modalities of it, which you have a, a beautiful diagram at the end of the chapter for. Mm-hmm. But in, in one of the footnotes, or in actually two, I believe, you say that in his most, in some of his most recent work, say in 2018, Malavol is has moved from a position whereby the autistic subject seemingly doesn't have access to the to the symbolic or to signifiers, but now it seems like there's this shift that you start to point out where perhaps by way of supplementarity, the autistic subject can begin to sketch out or, or to, to hollow out a place whereby to access or to have provisional access to, to this, this world that was seemingly fully foreclosed. Is that still a problem that, that you're working through? Or is that part of future research? Is this something that, that you're still working on? Yes,
2: absolutely. Yeah, you've identified the, uh, the most uh, pressing issue. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a big question, right? Um, and yes, it's in the footnote. It's great that someone reads the footnote. It's, it's <laughs> Oh, I love your footnote. I, I do. <laughs> Good. So, yeah, there is a certain question. Are we talking about the primacy of the sign? in autism or the sole recourse to the sign in autism, right? This is a question that is sort of still debated, let's say, between some scholars and also with Maleval as well in his recent publications. And and it's true that uh, Maleval has shifted into uh, thinking about, uh, about an access to signifiers. And it's a good question. And I think at this point, it becomes a question of definition and concepts, mm-hmm. because I think that the, there is a certain agreement that I can say between us or between the scholars that deal with this, that the several functions that are associated with the signifier are achieved, are accessible for autistic subjects. So it makes you ask yourself, well, is this in fact, are we talking, in fact, of a signifier or of a certain transmutation of the sign, right? Mm-hmm. a certain, particular use uh, of the sign. Now, I can just present my view yeah, on it. Please. One of the interesting concepts that uh, Maleval starts to work on, and I, I further develop in the book, is the synthetic other. Yes, right. yes. And uh, we think about, we, we talk about the big other as the locus of a signifier, and in the book I present the synthetic other as the locus of the sign. If we think of the uh, Other as locus of signifier, we we think about different linguistic units which are empty. They do not refer to anything. They are bits of sound, let's say, and they relate one to another. And through these interrelations, we talked about that Mm -hmm. last week, uh, meaning is engendered. So the big other, the other signifier, is this network of interlinked sounds uh, which are dynamic and change their links. And just you see meanings evolve out of these these historical events or slowly evolve in the history of human language, and this is is the place. Now, the synthetic other, we can imagine it as a matrix of sign and referent, right? So, this is how the sign works. Unlike the signifier, which only refers to other signifiers and not to a referent, the sign refers to a referent, and it has a rigid relationship with this referent. So the synthetic other would be like a matrix of, uh, like a code language, you know, this sign means this, this sign means this, this sign means this, this sign together with that sign might mean this, right? So this is how it is complexified. Now, what we see in the clinic of autism, and I see, I see it myself as well, is that many times, This is some new stuff, by the way. This This is great. Not not, uh, published yet, but hopefully soon. We see the problem of sticky signifiers, one could Mm. say, or sticky signs, even even more relevant, where a subject would identify with a particular word or a particular description, maybe even a description that one read in the dictionary. Autism is one of them, right? So. In, let's say, my work with people that come and see me and they say, well, I'm autistic. Yeah, it's uh, it, Sometimes it starts like that. I never take it at face value, even if the person had, uh, a, you know, a certain uh, test or how they call this, uh, right. to see if they're autistic. I'm always interested to see what this means to complexify it, right? This is a, a sign and has a dictionary definition. And sometimes we see autistic people, especially those that, you know, just live, pretty good life. They're not uh, troubled on the level of the body too much or the level of the social bond. They have some problems with the social bond or with with the question of identity, etc. That we see these sticky signifiers that sort of like they have identified with and it is very difficult for them to build a world picture in which uh, this is not the exact definition of who they are or what they're doing. And sometimes these signifiers are problematic for them. You know, because they come with like a heavy load. An autistic person that may might be a bit, find it a bit dif- more difficult to uh, integrate socially, might collect these signs as a child or as an adult. And sort of these are the major signs that define it. Now, what we would do, in this sense, is try and identify points where this definition does not correspond with life experiences. And in this sense, ask the question, is this really the only sign that is relevant for the designation of this very fundamental subjective characteristic? Yeah? The goal is to introduce more signs. And in, in fact, refer one sign to the other. Mm-hmm. So it is not so much finding signs that refer to reference in the world, but saying, well, maybe this sign that defines you actually has a relationship with some other sign. Maybe, uh, let's say, um, I, I just don't want to give um, examples uh, from for my work, because this is uh, not, uh, not okay. So, right, let's, right, leave it, let's, leave it, uh, let's leave it at a very theoretical level. So, we just, what we do is we interpose one sign to another. Now, this might uh, sort of should light a red light or a green light in your mind, because this is how signifiers work. Right? Right. Signifiers refer to each other. So, what we see here is one sign refers to another. I'll give you an example now, because it will clarify, and then we'll patch up this subject. Temple Grandin, in her book, says that it's very difficult for her to conceive of abstract concepts. For instance, the concept of peace is difficult to comprehend because there is no referent for it in the world. So because she's dependent on signs, she cannot find a referent to attach to this sign. What she does is interpose signs in her mind. And these are visual signs. So she interposes the image of a dove and the image of a leaf, of olive leaf or something. I don't remember exactly. And what she does, she says, in my mind, I see these images and I interpose them, connect one to the other. And the relationship between these three or four images, this is peace for me. By doing so, she creates an abstract concept. But it's not an abstract concept in the way that we would refer to it, right? And I think Maleval refers to it briefly and he calls it pseudo concepts. Yes, yeah. Now, the way that I look at it is that what Temple Grandin is doing is creating pseudo concepts. She is creating, let's say, I, I, we, we should name it. We should think about a name and, and I'll, I'll write it in my next paper. So, but it's a complexified sign. It's a sign, a transmutated sign. It's a pseudo signifier, maybe mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. call it. It's a pseudo signifier. This is a good way to call it, right? She creates a pseudo signifier because she interposes signs. But I would maybe risk saying that this is not a signifier per se. Right. Right. And I think this is where the the sort of um, discussion is at this point. Are we talking about a transition from the level of the sign to the level of the signifier? Or are we lo- talking about pseudo-signifiers in this mm-hmm. interposing? One of the directions of the treatment in autism is producing these pseudo-signifiers, right? right? And finding a way that they could be not be destabilizing, but be actually a source for satisfaction and more freedom in in one's life. And these pseudo-signifiers and, let's say, some other linguistic implementations that we see autistic subjects make with, they provide the subject access to a dynamism that we do identify with subjects that are disposed to the use of signifiers. So I think this is the point point. this is the debate. And if you ask me, it's not, we don't really have to say or have to assume that an autistic subject will construct a signifier. It is, I think, uh, quite admirable and uh, fascinating, this
0: notion of the pseudo signifier. That's an interesting, just to think about when Nietzsche talks about the the powers of the false, right? Because pseudos being false. I mean, for Nietzsche, it's a completely positive thing. And, And I think that the way that you discuss it in in dialogue with Malaval is this notion of the fabrication of pseudo pseudo concepts? So it's not necessarily a negative thing. It, it is this question of construction, as you as you point out. And I suppose I guess that w- that would be my way of asking you if I understand the difference between the closed synthetic other and the open synthetic other. It's not necessarily that the closed can't be. Ciphered at all by other subjects, but it's it's particularly that the close synthetic other is specifically a way of inscribing or infusing affect into the quote unquote coded language, and the open synthetic other would would that necessarily be divorced from from affect and be more about a purely informational side? Am I understanding that correctly? About is affect the dividing line between the close and the open? I suppose. Mm. Now that you ask me
2: this question, I'm I'm starting to think my wheels turn. <laughs> okay. After, after we talked about this. But you know, basically the distinction between the closed and the open synthetic other is one is closed, it only it's only used by the subject for a particular mm. private form of satisfaction. Gotcha. And the open is also, let's say, open to the social bond. And in a way, gotcha. uh, is it it is true that on the level of coding affects or decipher or ciphering affects. We see many autistic people that talk about a, a private language a mm-hmm. private language of affect. There's this uh, excellent video by the late Amanda Bags online in our language, where she demonstrates her mode of affective communication that is closed out, off to mm-hmm. uh, the uh, exterior world. But what is interesting, what sort of got me, you got me thinking right now is that, yes, one of the functions of these pseudo signifiers is, in fact, uh, some way of engaging with affect. This is uh, something that we do see in the clinic of autism, whereas the hypothesis so far is that for the autistic subject, there is a disjunction between the intellect and affect. Mm -hmm. So one can intellectualize about affects, but the first hand experience of affect will be outside the let's say conscious, rational intellectual capacity of one to of a subject to fathom. At this point, and maybe today for the first time, we can say that maybe we should think of the pseudo-signifier as a way to bridge mm-hmm. or at least provide a compensation or a supplement for this this divide.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It does seem
0: then that that's what kind of struck me at the end of this this chapter was it does seem to circle back around <laughs> to one of one of Freud's fundamental issues with thinking through repression which is precisely that what happens to the affect and what happens to the ideational representative in repression they don't undergo the same fate necessarily yes. and, exactly. and and so that that seems to sort of wrap things back around and enter it back up in this dialogue, which we've had at least since Freud, if not even earlier, at least, you know, in psychoanalytic literature, but we could potentially find other um, other interlocutors before or after that aren't necessarily in the tradition. But yeah, I guess that that's kind of what I was struck by was this notion that what happens to the affect, what happens to the idea under repression, this is something for Freud that, that uh, I think he struggles with, or at least is conscious of and tries to articulate throughout when he's thinking through what happens in repression and and what what are the what are the associative links with the affect and and the ideational representative you know and is that the goal to, to link those together again associatively mm. you know mm. it's all of this stuff got me really excited no
2: absolutely and um i think uh, a very interesting example for this you can find in uh, Donna Williams' books. Mm-hmm. And for her, she describes this deep transformation in her relationship with her body, with her affects, following the publication of her first book. And um, yeah, I, I recently published a paper on the mirror stage in autism and uh, also uh, based on Maleval's work on uh, on. Donna Williams and the mirror, and there's a certain idea that is developed there that by creating this unique object, the book, which encapsulates her very intimate, most intimate subjective dynamism in it. It's a confession in a way. It's, a, mm. it's something extremely intimate. It's like a part of the body in a way. Mm. Yeah? By inscribing it in a book, and again, we talked last week about the entry into language through the written word Mm -hmm. so we see here again through the written word something of the body is transmitted into an object that is then separated from the hold of the subject so she lets go of it because it's published and she says now it's out of my hands it was terrifying she says now it was out of my hands and what is interesting here, it is separated from the hold of the subject and invested in the social bond without the subject's control. But for Williams also gives her a, an opportunity to experience a separation that is not traumatic, that does not destroy her. And she says that after this separation from this kind of object, she experienced a transformation in her relationship with the body and affect. So we can say a transformation in the functioning of the drive circuit. So, again, we see how the work of writing, literature, testimony can, in a way, be used and implemented by autistic subjects in introducing into their reality changes which are so dramatic that we might say things like, well, this might be an introduction of the signifier or this might be an account of of what happens in autism after the divide between intellect and affect certain trajectories to to
0: take how are we doing on time Leon I just I just want to know um I'm yeah. having a, such a good time I just like <laughs> well I mean <laughs> we've been uh, about an
1: hour I think Shavarja. yeah I I, yeah.
0: I want I, we didn't want to keep you as as long as last time <laughs> yeah, yeah. but if you want we can let's do it let's do it okay, okay. now after all of this I suppose I would want to talk to you since we spent the beginning of our discussion today on the rim. One of the things I think I would like to maybe discuss, and maybe this helps to connect everything, are the different rims. Mm-hmm. And you don't. I see that you don't necessarily want to. Would I be corrected saying you, you're not necessarily arguing that they're that these are evolutionary stages? Exactly correct because you do seem to have share with Lacan and with other thinkers a, a resistance or a, a sort of, let's say, allergy to evolutionism, yes. you know. In another footnote, you sort of, I think when you're um, quoting Lorenzo Chiesa and the, the unary trait, which we're not going to get into today, but you kind of, you mentioned that uh, this you keep with his language about levels, but you say, you think of them more as dialectical moments. Would that apply to these different rims in the same sense? And if not, or if that's not even a relevant question, can we can we maybe discuss this move, or, or the differences between no rim, protective rim, dynamic rim, hollowing out of the rim towards what you describe as a transparent pole? Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, this is um, again excellent. To see that someone's reading the footnotes. Uh, and and uh, yeah, and absolutely. Uh, I, I do not um, progress uh, a developmental approach to autism. Mm-hmm. So it's not the idea that there's certain, this room, then you need to sort of finish it like a Super Mario level and you get to the right. next one. <laughs> there is something that I might say, which... Maybe might uh, remind some listeners of that uh, the idea that well before we use language for in its let's say for its dynamic aims sort of I don't know developing interests or um, engaging with our bodies etc. Mm-hmm. I think that subjects would usually use language for its protective function. Before that, I think the curiosity towards language has to be sort of proven in a way, engaged with. But not all autistic subjects experience these terrible invasions uh, mm-hmm. of drive stimuli that has, have and have to use language to protect themselves. So not everybody goes through the protective rim. But yeah, maybe I would say that if you do, then maybe you will protect. Use the sign for protection before you use it for (laughs) your special interest. This just makes sense. But these rim modalities of the RIM are just, let's say, modalities that can be identified in the testimonies and autobiographies of autistic subjects. Today, we've spoken about a modality that I think is different what we talked about this pseudo signifier today, I think this is another modality to be added. The idea is that there is no finite set of modality that is not like the um, schizoid, paranoid depressive and then we get to the, there's no finite set of modalities. These are just ways that language has been found to be useful by autistic subjects. And what I do in the book, I say, well, we see that language is used as a means of protection. Right? Protection from the invasion of drive stimuli. It's also used for dynamic aims like, you know, mediating bodily functions, social functions, creating fields of knowledge and opening the subject up to these pleasures of language. You know, language, it provides us with pleasure and satisfaction. So this would be the dynamic aim. And then finally, using language as a certain, let's say, lexicon of the social bond and incorporate mm-hmm. yourself in the social bond through your crea- creations.
0: Which is yes. why the synthetic other is what, is what seems to, you sketch it out, that the, the line goes towards that transparent pole, right? That that would be sort of key in engaging in the, in, in the social bond.
2: This is uh, what I progress in the book, the, um, and in another point where <clears throat> there's a certain distinction between the way that uh, Maleval views the synthetic other. Uh, I think I view the synthetic other as this locus mm-hmm. in which all linguistic inscriptions having to do with the sign take place. Mm-hmm. So this is from the protective function of language to the transparent pole to to the incorporation of the social bond. This synthetic other is just the place where these things are inscribed, let's say, when we talk about these in Lacanians psych- psychic terms. The transparent pole is the idea that the autistic linguistic spectrum is not demarcated by two, let's say, marks, low functioning, high functioning, etc. It's open. Right. There are many autistic people, which are never diagnosed as autistic, might never even find out that they're autistic. And we can say that they aren't the transparent pole of autism, they sort of out of whatever is relevant to clinically address. to to address in the clinic, right? And this is the transparent pole, so it's open-ended. But in between or on the spectrum itself, prior to the transparent pole, we identify these modalities because we meet these subjects that come to the clinic or testify about their autism so we can say something about it. And the transition between these uh, levels or modalities is not linear and it can happen in different ways and a subject can adopt some protective aspects of language, some dynamic aspects of it. uh, At a certain point, There's no necessity that the history will evolve in this way, you know, protection, simple autistic object, complex autistic object, double special interests, et cetera, et cetera. These are just modalities that are found in autism and every case is different.
0: Yes. You make that point very clearly that it's it's highly individual linked to the individual history. And so that rules out what I kind of said before, this notion of a, a universal evolutionary Development and exactly. and it also goes kind of to Lacan correcting Freud or or against Freud by throwing out the genital and the phallic part of that is is to say that there is no sort of Violation evolution there. to, yeah there's no evolution towards a complete body right? or yeah, a complete yeah, you know. body that it's all partial partial zones and
1: so yes
2: um, thank God huh?
0: <laughs> I mean and, and, I'm a
1: monad I don't know about uh, <laughs>
0: I mean, it's, and I guess that that sort of is a, is for another time, we could say it's related to the there is no sexual relation. But I really found these different rims very interesting. And if I had to end on one thing, unless, Unless Cooper, you had, well, I, I've, I've hogged the, I've hogged the
1: <laughs> Leon. I, so. I had a couple of brief things. One, and I don't know if we have time or if this would be going too far back, but I was kind of curious just in looking at the way that the, the rim, the graph of the rim that you have, that's focused on the drive. And, you know, I do notice there's a very sort of, there's a kind of similarity there between that and the sort of graph of Joey Sans. And I wanted to maybe discuss at least briefly, if possible, this sort of differentiation between how the autistic subject experiences desire relative to lack or the la- lacking the ability to lack. And maybe just talk about that briefly. If you can, if it's too much, then don't, you know, just disregard that. But I was kind of interested because I always associated for some reason, objet a as more of a relation to desire and sort of this metonymic horizontal movement rather than the orbital motion of the drive. It's kind of how I always perceive it as a, a planet with a sort of elliptical orbit.
2: I'll try and answer it briefly, and then <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll have a comment about uh, what we've just talked about, objectivity sure. and everything. I'll answer this briefly, and this is uh, very explicit in seminar 10 of Lacombe, that when he says that if we want to speak about desire, or if there is desire for the subject, there must be a yielding of jouissance in the first place. And Lacan discusses a certain yielding of jouissance and then a moment of anxiety, and then uh, we see uh, the subject's desire enter the scene. So, in terms of the drive and the drive circuit and drive functionality, we have to say that, well, there has to be a yielding of drive satisfaction or drive stimuli to the big other. The drive has to be inscribed in the big other. The object of the drive has to be inscribed in the big other so that desire can be functional in the way that we see it in the clinic. What does this mean about autistic desire? This is a huge question that I'm grappling with today still because, well, theres I'm not sure there is a consensus on that today, but it's a, it's a very good question and I'm still grappling with uh, today and hope to have answers when we talk again in the future. My last comment for today has to do with uh, exactly what we've mentioned earlier: this uh, the fact that Lacan took the genital off the uh, the uh, trajectory of drive maturation, because you know you can read Freud as suggesting this developmental pathway mm-hmm. leading from autoerotism to narcissism to object love, and in a way there are many there are many. Uh, intriguing comments in Freud, which today I think might be either read as being extremely unfortunate or read like Lacan is reading them by turning them up on their head. But some comments which I think were the driving force and still are the driving force for many Practitioners of psychoanalysis and other psychotherapy therapies today, and they're encapsulated in this notion called oblativity, as though there is an aim to the development of the drive, which is normative or is adaptive or is healthy. And in this sense, we train analysts to be healthy, healthy subjects, sort of get to a point where their drive functions in the proper way. And then they go to the clinic and they teach you how to do it. Now Lacan, as early as the the early sixties, he was already really angry about that, and he mm-hmm. was say he was calling these kind of analysts as analysts that that what they do in fact is an effective re-education. This is what he says is not the principle of the power of the treatment. It is not the exertion of power on the subject, making it like us, creating right. copies of the healthy analyst, and I'm making scare quotes right now in our mm-hmm. chat. And this is this. Manifests itself in the Lacanian clinic in the fact that there is no predetermined trajectory for the treatment. You never know where it's going to go. This is the case by case perspective. Yes, you never know what where it's going to go. And uh, although the analyst takes the position of the subject who knows well, he might know some things, but not that in the clinic of autism and in the autistic linguistic spectrum this principle also manifests itself in the fact that there is no predetermined aim to the treatment of autism this goes against the most prevailing methods to treat autism today like the behavioral methods Mm -hmm. that have a predetermined goal they know what is good for the subject and this behavior has to be extinguished and the other is not but in the lacanian orientation there is no such thing. Every object could be useful. Every invention could be invaluable. There is no psychoanalyst that knows that the aim is the protective rim, or the aim is the dynamic rim, or the aim is this. It is whatever the subject brings to the clinic and the unique inventions that the subject puts forth, which are the driving force and the aim of the treatment. And in this sense, it is so important to keep the autistic linguistic spectrum open this is the transparent pole because it demonstrates that there is no end, there is no development development that reaches an end point. Yes. the treatment goes wherever it goes mm-hmm. and is not limited. So I think this is the way that the way that we can learn something from Lacan's abolishment of the notion of ob- oblativity and the genital final genital trajectory, and we see it in the clinic of autism in the sense that. We don't necessarily aim to incorporate the subject in the social bond. Maybe, if that is something that comes up, if that is a wish, it's not the aim of every autistic subject to find a partner, not the aim of every autistic subject to find a job. It's not the aim of every autistic subject to, I don't know, speak with his or her friends, right? Every treatment is different and its aims are set by the subject and not by the practitioner beforehand. And maybe we
0: can end with uh, this. That's a beautiful point to end on. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it really clarifies the, I'll just say, the kind of micro political stakes of, yes. of your book. Yeah. You, know, your, you know, the arguments that you lead against, whether it be behavioral analysis on one hand or the, the evolutionary developmental stuff on the other, or this question about a cure which you always put in scare quotes, right? And all of that is uh it was nice because you you restated in different ways the conclusion to your work. And so I think that is a perfect place to, to end. Okay, wonderful. So well, let's Leon, do that. Yeah, Leon, we appreciate you uh, Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: especially for coming back and right. and really getting getting into the the weeds with us and helping helping us all to to understand this issue and and, and even to show us that there are still these things on the horizon. Yeah. To, that are open for, for research and discussion and uh, and really open to um, to a lot of, of work in the future so i mean i'm looking forward to to seeing where you go with this and you know as you said hopefully i would hope you know maybe in the new in the coming year we can we can reconvene and and, uh, and continue discussing either these issues or some other interesting lacanian
1: perspectives
2: absolutely i'd love to and please whenever you have an idea just tell
1: me yeah (laughs) okay we will sounds great
2: well we're gonna let you uh go go get some dinner okay good so yes gonna have some nice uh, dinner and uh well tell me tell me when things uh materialize and we have the the podcast out and i'll of course share it on all of my social medias uh, excellent and make sure that that some more listeners reach it
0: we'll definitely do that and that's Cooper's uh, area <laughs> of expertise. He is the editor par excellence. Okay. And we'll keep you in, in the loop and we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you okay. so much, Leon.
2: Thanks again, Leon. Of course, of course. And we'll talk soon. Yes. Absolutely. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. See ya.
1: Bye. Bye. And that will wrap up this week's episode of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins.
0: The very rules of theory, of negativity and synchronizing
1: the ultimate form of security, which is... Alchemist's character. To the whole state of things, a violence without much This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what
0: happens there is a murder of the women. The vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a
1: misunderstanding here. What I did is
0: the following with nothing left but recycled, whitewashed lobotomized people as in block uh, work
2: orange.